worshiping our Lord in song, and now we're going to worship our Lord in the supper as we share together as well. And this is a significant time in the life of the church, and really a, a serious time for our reflection. And I want to just lead us as we come together. But I want to do that by telling you a story. Uh, and I shared this story with our youth recently because it involved a girl named Susanna who was an 11 year old girl and uh, this is based in church history. This is the Moravian story if you've heard of it. Uh, This takes you back to Germany in 1727. Remember then? (laughs) And uh, it was about 300 years ago there was a man and it was a man named Zinzendorf and on the 5th of Germany, oh, sorry, the 5th of Germany, the 5th of August, the 5th of August, Zinzendorf and 14 others were in prayer at a place called Bethel, Bethelsdorf. Get that? Zinzendorf, Bethelsdorf. Yep. And they were in prayer and took some serious time in prayer over one evening as a community, as a group. The day later, young Susanna, a 11-year-old, she had uh, about four months before or five months before lost her mother in the sadness of that, and in a night, um, she actually spent three nights in prayer herself, and then she came to her father and said this beautiful thing that she'd come to actually know who God was. She said to her father, Father, now I am a child of God, and now I know how it is and still is for my mother. And she came to that realization uh, in that time of prayer with the Lord. So there's a great movement of young people at that time, and a movement of God's Spirit in young people, and that community sent out like 70 missionaries from a community of 500 people. It's pretty amazing. If you want to check out the story sometime, have a look. Anyway, on the 10th of August then, four days later, in 1727, there was a pastor of another township of Hearn's Hut. Hearn's Hut, you're with me? And uh, he and his uh, group of church, they earnestly got together in prayer as well. And then they decided on the August the 13th that they would actually um, join at the invitation of Zinzendorf. And so they walked to there to have communion together. So imagine that, walking to have communion. You know what That'd be like us walking over to Wallingbar together and would have it with Wallingbar Christian Church or something and share the Lord's Supper together. Let me tell you what happened there. Zinzendorf shared a powerful sermon on the cross of Christ and the glory of the Lamb. That's what we've been singing about, the Lamb. After further confession of sins and reconciliation amongst the brethren, they came to the communion table. So I'm going to encourage us now to think about that. Confession and reconciliation what this supper is about and it's what God shows us in his son and by confessing of our sins we find reconciliation with God but also encourage us now to think about things that we might need to confess and even if you're here with your family or or your people group then or there's someone that you might need to reconcile with I would encourage you to be brave enough to even do that before we have the supper now if you get up and walk across the room to someone else they might they, it might be a bit obvious <laughs> But um, it is challenging, isn't it, to reconcile and think, am I in a right relationship with this person or is there something that I need to bring before God and before them in confession? So I want to give you just 30 seconds just to think about that and to reflect on that and then we're going to pray together.
Lord God, you know what's on our heart and what's on our minds. And you know there are those relationships that need reconciliation. And forgive us, Lord, for when we've done things that uh, break relationships and bring harm to them. And thank you, Lord God, that you have shown us the way of reconciliation, that we have the gift and the ministry of reconciliation because you have reconciled us to yourself. And that's good news. And we want to celebrate that now and we want to thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen. I'm going to encourage us to say a prayer together, a prayer that one of our candidates for baptism is memorising. So it would be encouraging if we do actually say this together. Oh, sorry, there's my slides. That reminds you. Reminds me. Uh, of this prayer. And the, this prayer is from Matthew 6. If you're noticing your newsletter, it's actually printed in there, a version in there, which I'll encourage you to have a look at sometime. It's in red. But it would be good for us to say this together as a prayer before we come to have the supper. Heavenly Father, you have loved us with an everlasting love, but we have broken your holy law and have left undone what we ought to have done. We are sorry for our sins and turn away from them. And now the prayer from Matthew 6 is the Lord's Prayer. As we come around the Lord's Supper table, let's say this together. Our beloved Father in heaven, praise be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive others. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For you are the King who rules with power and glory forever. Amen. I'll invite our stewards to come forward who are serving. And when you are ready to come forward, and I encourage you, if you are a follower of Christ, uh, even if you're a visitor with us, we, you join around the supper table with us, if you're trust, trusting in Jesus' death and resurrection, um, come to share together. And friends, come forward and receive these. And I encourage you to hold that to uh, you get back to your seat and we'll have that together when we've all been served. If you're a parent of a young person, this is a great opportunity to remind them of what this is about and to be training and teaching them. Friends, take this in remembrance that Christ died for you and be thankful. And drink this in remembrance that Christ's blood was shed for you and be truly thankful. Let me finish in prayer. Lord God, we thank you so much that you're a generous God who gives great gifts and we pray that you continue to help us to feed on uh, the gift of reconciliation and remember today what that means and what you have brought to us in your son Jesus and we ask this in his name, amen. Radio, we're going to look at Titus so if you want to move to there in your screen if you want to look down <laughs> and we've been looking at training Titus so this has been our series and today's talking about training unchecked which I'll just give you a quick catch up not everyone's been here with us probably all this time and maybe you're just jumping in on this sermon series for the first time I want to catch you up not on the Commonwealth Games but I do want to catch up on that and uh, not on your favorite episode but on our favorite uh, sermon series isn't it Titus our new favorite sermon series
Anyway, when we started in Titus, we first asked, who is your Titus? Getting you to think about who is your trainee or who is your apprentice, because Paul had an apprentice in Titus. And I then encouraged us to think about how to train and gave us some tips in how we could possibly do that. That was the first introduction kind of into the series. Then secondly, we thought about, uh, the second thing was training your true son or daughter. And Titus is called a true son in the faith, as Paul trained him. And thinking about that. Thirdly, we think about training leaders, which is last week, the responsibility that leaders have and the call upon their life and the standards. And Ian reminded us of that last week as we looked at that. And we really looked at what a faithful servant looks like. Today, that's set against a false servant or a false leader. Um, and that's why it's called training unchecked without correction. I was just thinking when I was growing up, I was a swimmer and used to get up early in the mornings and train. And uh, throughout that in the afternoons too, you'd have times when you'd have stroke correct correction. And if you didn't get cor- corrected right, you keep swimming the wrong sh- the stroke r- incorrectly and not as efficiently. Also, as an apprentice as well, uh, need a correction as an apprentice, you'd hardly believe it, would you? Uh, but I wasn't as much correction as the other apprentice who shot the boss, boss in the finger with a nail gun while I was holding a timber for him. <laughs> um, but as apprentices, apprentices need correction and direction. And as a husband, or as a uh, father, as a pastor, do you think I need correction? Don't answer that question. <laughs> Could get yourself in trouble. No. Uh, uh, while um, whatever role or position you have or title you give yourself, I wonder, here's probably an easy question, what do you want training in or receive training in? But here's the harder question. What will you receive correction in? What will you receive correction in? And it's only when you receive proper correction, really, that we grow in these roles and this space. And it's only actually... The Holy Spirit, who's the one who convicts us and corrects us and puts us in the right direction. So let's pray now as we start, and I'll ask you to pray with me. Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that your Spirit resides in those that follow you, and that you are so generous and gracious to deal with us, to show us when we are walking down a wrong path, and that you, as a loving Father, want to correct and direct us in the right way. So we pray that we might hear your voice now, that you might lead us in that and you might direct us in that. And we ask and pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Well, I've caught you up and we're on the context and you've got an outline there or you've got it printed out which might be of help to you to follow along. But I'll give you a quick update on the context. We've got the Apostle Paul is writing to Titus, the apprentice, the apprentice pastor really, he is on the island of Crete, if you can spot that there. Um, bit of a different place to what it was then. Can you spot it there? There it is there in the middle of the Mediterranean. But let me tell you about uh, Crete quickly. Or Titus was in Crete, in, in that place there, that island. But before that, he was in Corinth, which is in Greece as well, which is over, over, over that way. And before that, he was actually doing a mission circuit with Paul around this region. 
And that's actually where he had come to know Jesus through Paul's ministry and he'd become a true son in the faith, so to speak. Now, Crete, give you a quick update on Crete. It is a fairly large island in the Mediterranean there. There's lots of islands in there, little ones. But uh, this one is, its coastline is very large. It's a thousand plus kilometers around the coastline of it. Its width is like 260 kilometers wide there. So that's like twice Fraser Island. That way, that way, yeah. And it has, at some spaces, it's only 12 kilometers wide, but it can go up to 60 kilometers. So it's thin and long or thinning in, in different places. And it is a place that has dramatic mountains popping out of the sea, really. Some of the mountains, or the highest mountain, is higher than our, our mountain, Mount Kosciuszko. So it's dominated by these magnificent mountains leaping out of the sea, kind of like. Today, it has an exotic holiday kind of place. It's isolated and got naturalist beaches. You know what they are? Naturalist beaches, yeah. Uh, in the 60s, who's a baby of the 60s? No. In, in 60, not 1960, I mean 60 AD. <laughs> in 60 AD, the coast there actually, or the place there, would have had little townships. And so the Christian groups meeting, and obviously in a steep place like that, harder to get around. Uh, they use chips and stuff. But there, there is groups of Christians who need leaders there. And that is why Titus is appointed to stay there, to appoint leaders to those different Christian communities around the island. That's a quick update. Um, he appoints elders, which is presbyters, where we get the word of the Presbyterian church. And it also is the same role as a shepherd, uh, where we get the idea of word of pastor from and the idea of overseer where we get the Episcopalian Church, Episcos is Episcopalian Bishop Church, overseer, overseeing. Um, so that is what he's there left to do. That's a quick context update, but let's get to the circumcision party. This is a fun bit, isn't it? You want to be part of that party? <laughs> Why are the ladies laughing? Uh, to belong to that party, you have to be a male, obviously, and the membership is costly in some ways. Titus wasn't part of that party. He was uncircumcised and he was, uh, in Galatians 2, which we looked at earlier at another time, we see that he wasn't compelled to be circumcised too when there was pressure around. And actually, he went with Paul when they went to the Council of Jerusalem and you can read about that in Acts 15 where Titus is really living proof that it's actually not necessary for circumcision for salvation. It is about Jesus and trusting Him alone. It is about God's grace and His goodness and generous gift to us in Jesus and Him alone. And that was a real point that was made. But there's a, there's a party uprising or infiltration in these Christian communities around Crete and other places as well. And have a look there in verse 10 because we start to pick up that. So I'll read it, that, that for us, reading from the ESV says, for there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those from the circumcision party. What's the problem? Well, they are not walking, they are, uh, but they're talking, right? Um, they're not walking the faith, but they're talking the faith. 
It says there that their idea of rebellion or they're rebellious. They can't bring themselves under leadership and they actually are hungry for leadership. That word there, insubordinate, that's, you know, subordinate, put yourself under someone, as it's, as it's put there in the ESV. They are deceiving, whether that's knowingly or unknowingly. What do you think? Have you deceived someone unknowingly, maybe? Knowingly? Uh, in this case, we go on to read, have a look in verse 11. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameless gain what ought not to be taught. So he starts to make it clear that it's their own gain. Uh, it seems that this is knowingly that they are being deceptive in this way. They're destroying households. Why? Because of the uprest they're, ca- they're causing. And if you're a leader in a household, and in those times, in a hierarchical society, uh, a patriarchal society, then um, if the household leader, then it's, it's, it's upsetting a whole household, isn't it? There's a change that goes on there. And if it's a divisive issue, similar to maybe politics today, vaccination today, you know, finances today, then it upsets households, which you may have seen and been part of. That's the problem. What's the solution? Pretty simple. Silence them. How do you do that? Put a gag around them? It's actually by truth teaching and it's by trust, trustworthy sayings. Truth teaching and trustworthy sayings is the solution that Paul puts forward to young Titus. And if we were to look to Jesus and Jesus' training through Paul and what Paul says, if you go back a few pages or scroll down to, uh, scroll up probably to Ephesians, Ephesians 4, and in Ephesians 4, Paul reminds uh, the church there, he says, Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching, and by cunning and craftiness of people in their their deceitful scheming. So it was happening in other places as well. And we see there, you know, people can get blown around by different teachings here and back and forth, but it calls them to stick to the truth as it goes on to say in verse 15, instead speak the truth in love. We will in all things grow up into him who is at the head, that is Christ. Jesus' training advice on false teachers, you can go back into the Gospels and see in Matthew 7, where he says, deceivers will come. What will they do? They actually look like sheep. They'll be in sheep's clothing, so beware. He gives us that warning. Jesus also says, and and, uh, in in Matthew 18 as well, um, if you have a problem or an issue with someone, what's the solution? Go to them one to one. If there's still the issue there, go to them one to two or three. Maybe that's taking along an elder with you. And if not, then to the church. Uh, But that's more like a personal issue, isn't it? Or a personal grievance or some fracture you have in a relationship. But what about in a church setting if there's teaching going on that's not the truth? Well, it's pretty much saying here it's got to be stamped out. 
before the flame, the, stamp the flame out before the fire starts. And uh, he's reminding the church here and reminding Titus that he's called to teach the truth. Now, there's lots of teaching about false teaching in the New Testament. I, I encourage you to go through. I think most New Testament books actually mention false teaching. Check it out sometime. Have a look. And it only takes a little mistruth to change a whole message and a whole story, doesn't it? A little mistruth changes the whole message and story. So to say that Jesus wasn't really the Son of God, He didn't have divinity, that changes the whole story. And it changes a whole group of people. And we say, well, He's just a good person and He's a prophet. That's what Muslim people say. Uh, that's what Jehovah's Witness people say. They don't align the divinity to Jesus. It changes the whole story. A little mistruth changes the whole story, how important it is. But we'll move from the circumcision party and what was going on there, the truth about that, to the Cretans. And uh, we follow along in verse 12 and 13. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, says, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Pretty telling story about him. Uh, don't put that on your uh, Facebook page or something, <laughs> post. But he makes clearly here that the island's got a reputation, has it, and people even know it. Paul quotes one of their own, kind of own prophet, or a, a poet or a philosopher who's speaking from years ago. Um, and not only they had a reputation, but people like the Corinthians had a reputation as well. And you only have to read the letter to the Corinthians to see what sort of stuff was going on there. And I think, actually, I'm not, I think this is right, to Corinthianize was a kind of word that if you got into what the Corinthians doing, that's what you're doing. And it had kind of connotations with licentiousness and hedonism and, and, and sexual connotations. So here's young Titus. He's been at Corinth. He's been at Crete. And he's been church discipline and church correction 101. What an interesting gig for him. The prophecy that, and the real prophecy of 700 years ago, uh, before this time, you can look at in Isaiah, where Isaiah talks about what um, the world would be like and what the church would be like as well, or, or the state of the church. So if you move back to Isaiah, if you want to flick there with me, but I'll read, I'll read it for you. And Isaiah 56, verse 10, 56, 10, found it. It says, Israel's watchmen are blind. They are all lacking knowledge. They are all mute dogs. They cannot bark. They lie around and dream. They love to sleep. They are dogs with mighty appetites. They never have enough. They are shepherds who lack understanding and all turn to their own way, each seeking his own gain. It's, pre it's pretty much the state of uh, God's people at the time and the leader of his leaders of his people. So we see that, that warning there and uh, that prophecy that happens there of what's happening in Isaiah's time but picking up what's happening also in the time of Titus. 
And not only in the time of Titus, we think about our times and think about the church life and church and things that are going on in, in the church. It's interesting as I thought about this, um, the Western church or the church of the West is receiving in some ways correction from the rest of the worldwide church. You know, the Western church took the gospel to Africa and that's why in years gone by so many you know, people went to Africa and so many missionaries went to Africa. But it's interesting now, in, in, and I'm talking mainly about the Anglican, I know the Anglican church, yeah, I know a little bit about the Anglican church. Um, the Anglican church, it's actually the African um, Anglican church, which is bringing correction to the Western Anglican church in their understanding of sexuality. And they're going, you guys bought us the Bible. We're in the Bible about this stuff you're talking about. And it's not in our Bible. What's going on? And we, we see this not only in Australia receiving correction from our islander friends, our Polynesian friends, just even in the week with the football in the NRL. There's, a, there's you know, seven members on a team that say we're not going to wear that jersey and uh, that, that's something that we're not going to do. It's even really bringing kind of correction to even our str- country, Australia. Uh, we took, you know, it was Australia and others who took the gospel to those nations or PNG, Fiji, the Solomon, all those islands. It was often um, Australia and others, uh, Westerners, that brought that message to them. See, it only takes a generation that goes by, and it's only a generation ago, that gay marriage or gender fluidity wasn't something that was a real option. And here we are a generation on take long to change does it but have a look here at Isaiah had some words to say too about the state of the world so just flick on a page over and in Isaiah 59 starting from verse 14 it says so justice is driven back and the righteousness stand at a distance truth is stumbling in the streets honesty cannot enter truth is nowhere to be found and whoever shuns evil becomes prey sound like our time so we have Crete we have Corinth culture and we have our culture the island of Oz maybe not that different to what's happening and a word for what's going on for Titus and the times there let's move from that to the correction which he has for them in verse 13 Uh, the second half of verse 13, which says, Therefore rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and to the commands of people, but but turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their mind and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. So the correction's getting pretty harsh there, isn't it? And unchecked error and teaching in the church is dangerous, and that's why Paul has this teaching for young Titus. Correction and rebuke, it's not really popular, isn't it? 
It's not really on your top list of things to do, not really on your bucket list. But it's, and, and it's probably because correction is easy and condemnation is easy as well. But correction in love is something that we need to think about and something that can be. Even in our leadership team, we have correction in love. Did you know that? So when someone gets the, the minutes wrong and we kind of say, oh, that wasn't really what we said there. <laughs> um, but we do it in love. And there's a responsibility for me as a pastor in terms of what teaching happens from this platform. And f- if you're a ministry, uh, if you're a life group leader or a youth group leader, a responsibility in your teaching or what you do teach. And so we are, are reminded of that here. Those that push mistruth in their own agenda, there is to be a sharp correction. For those that are dragged along or maybe just, you know, were lazy and didn't check the scriptures on that, maybe there's less sharpness in the correction. But there definitely has to be sharp correction between uh, and identifying the gospel and clarity and sharpness about the gospel. Because there are different gospels out there. There's a gospel of prosperity where if you name it and claim it, if word, word and faith kind of movement... Or if you, yeah, you name what you should have from God and He should bless you with that and that everything's going to be positive and good and blessed and, and, and prosperous, then that's not really the gospel that Jesus talks about. That's not the gospel Jesus talks about, is it? If you're going to follow Him, there's going to be hardships and persecution. There's the gospel of legalism as well, which is if you follow those strict kind of regulations, which we see similar to here, or if you follow things strictly, then... Um, there's a gospel of legalism and uh, it's not a gospel of grace which we want to make distinction about and sharp distinction about uh, that that's not the gospel of grace so that's in our church and correction in the church but i suppose as i mentioned a little bit before there's is, is do we have a role in correction in the world as well and where our world headed and influence in our world and i think we have to approach that carefully but we do need to speak the truth in love, in correcting our society from moral decay, which it can head down and towards. And kind of like we need to be, uh, I don't know, the, like the, the toothpaste that fights decay in our society, if we can use that analogy. And it says there, to the impure, unbelieving, they can see good in what might be very evil. They could think it's good. They could think it's good to euthanize unborn or old people. They could think there's some sort of good in, you know, transitioning teenagers. They could think there's good in all sorts of things to people that don't believe. Because when you come to Jesus, you have a different world view and you understand and see the world in a different way. So let's just think about that as we finish off because I want to finish off with this Christ-centered correction. If a ministry leader um, or if, if a ministry, oh, sorry, if a ministry or a leader of, of a ministry is more on about their own image or their own personality, then there needs to be a change of focus there. It's not a Christ-centered ministry, is it? If it's based around a personality uh, rather than service. If a person is directing you to something that compromises Jesus' teaching, then that needs correction, doesn't it? If a group, a Christian group, so a Christian group, or a lead, Christian leader or a Christian church is teaching a doctrine that undermines the divinity of Jesus, 
or the authority of Scripture, that church needs correction. If a person urges you to make a choice based on your feeling alone, not on prayer or God's Word, even fasting, then that person needs correction as well. So should the church culture be a culture of correction? Well, in that form, internally, yes. And if we believe the Scriptures and what Paul says in, one, in 2 Timothy 3, where he says, all Scripture is... God breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting. Do we believe that? Well, it means we've got to take that on if we're, and then we've got to have a culture of that. But I think there's a way that we do that. And as I mentioned, we need to do that in love. And we need to be correcting in love and for the good of um, humanity as well. And I suppose that's where it comes into our correcting culture or, or, or working on that and how we do that externally. But as I said, there's only going to be change in purity if people are purified by Jesus. If they come to see the need of Jesus, see that they can be purified and washed by Jesus, then they'll face the world in a different way. They'll have a different understanding of our creation, why we're created in the image of God, and what it means to be an image bearer, They'll have a, a different understanding of what it means to be uh, rescued and saved and need of forgiveness. They'll have a different understanding uh, uh, to our world's understanding of all these sorts of things. And it'll change your view of the world and the way we see life. And it's only when people understand that and come and trust Jesus that they actually purify it and they have His Spirit and the Spirit washes them, and the Spirit directs them. And I pray that the Holy Spirit directs us as we continue to think about how we go about being a corrective culture and how we go about being a Christ-centered culture. So let me pray for us and ask for God's wisdom and direction and His Spirit guidance in that. Lord Jesus, we want Your heart and we want Your minds to have in how to keep things centered on you and we want to understand how to correct and rebuke and train and do that in the way that you would do that so lord god help us to keep coming back to you understanding more of your heart understanding more of your mind on these things and lord jesus thank you for granting us your spirit and that your Spirit is the one that actually leads us and guides us, and that your Spirit wants to work on us and anything that you have brought to life that we need correcting in today. We ask, Lord, that we won't be uh, turning away from that, that we'll be courageous enough to face that and hear your voice and receive that correction because you love us, but, but you don't want us to walk down wrong paths. And you love us so much that you'll actually tell us when we're doing that. So help us now to sit and hear that correction from you. Lord and Holy Spirit, we invite you to do that. And may we be so bold and courageous to actually share that with one another, what you're teaching us in, what you're even correcting in us. And we ask and pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.